Welcome to the Surviving Opioids Beyond an Epidemic podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Simone. On this show, we talk opioids, addiction, and recovery. It's for anyone who wants to know that although we've lost a lot of good people this past decade, we also do recover. It's a show for people who feel trapped, like they're never going to get off the opioid merry-go-round, and it's for people who have stopped but feel like they'll never start feeling better again. Well, I'm here to tell you that it can get better, and it will. You're going to get some incredible perspectives from folks who have been impacted by the crisis, and you'll get some topic episodes where I try to pack a ton of value into answering your questions. If you like what you hear and you want more, subscribe to the show, give it a rating, leave a review. It's all good stuff, and it's what keeps this train rolling. All right, guys, enjoy the episode. What's up, guys? Welcome to Surviving Opioids Beyond an Epidemic Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Simone. I'm a doctor of pharmacy and advanced dietary supplement advisor by training. I'm a certified life coach, certified recovery coach. I do one-on-one work with reaction recovery, and I do group coaching with the Reframe Thrive community on the Reframe app, okay, which is available on iOS only right now. Personally, I ended a 12-year opiate addiction in 2016, and one day at a time, I am getting better. I started Reaction Recovery and, and this podcast and, uh, and the YouTube channel and Instagram. Everything that I do in this space is for one purpose, and that is to push back against this myth in the recovery world that you quit using drugs and somehow your life just starts getting magically better. That's um, not what happens. And if you think that that's what happens, you're setting yourself up for trouble. You know, like we do get better, we do recover, but it takes a lot of intentional, repeated effort. Um, so that's what I do. You know, that's what I'm all about. I try to help people figure out what that looks like for them because it's different for everybody. You know, like there's no one template that you can force on everyone. If there were, we would have found it already. So that's what I do. And then I keep the accountability dialed up to help those new behaviors turn into habits. And then those habits eventually become new neural pathways in the brain, and that's what we can consider recovering, okay? Um, The format of this show so far has been guest interviews, and I'm going to keep doing that, but I've also decided to throw in these little topic talks in between. For one, it's going to help save me some time. I didn't realize how how time-consuming it is getting guests and preparing a little bit and editing the audio and the video and... Uh, chopping up these little clips for for social media, so I started feeling the pressure to keep that going at a once a week pace. So, full disclosure, that's a big part of it for the format change, but also in terms of in terms of value per unit time. You know, this is probably the best bang for your buck. Uh, and I'll start polling people like on Instagram, and I'll ask what everybody prefers, and and I wouldn't be surprised if these shorter videos are what are what people like. So. Um, I enjoy the interviews and I know that a lot of you guys do too, you know, but they tend to get like a little bit long and it's, I mean, it's hard to keep us attentive these days and, and it happens to me too. You know, like I know like one of my, I know that one of my interviews is, is getting boring. Like when I start to edit the video and I find myself getting bored, you know, that's not a good sign for, uh, for how well the episode's going to do. So that interview format, you know, doesn't appeal to everybody, but the, what I can do is to try to give you know, some of these little condensed messages for maybe 20 minutes or something that, that kind of, that kind of seems to be the sweet spot for attention on a, 
on a given topic, or at least that's what I've been told. Um, you know, and now this one here that you're listening to is, yeah, it's probably going to be like a little bit longer. I, I don't know because I'm, you know, I'm doing this intro and I'm rambling a little bit. Um, but I want to give you an idea of what my mindset is with all this. You know, like I want this to be a lot more casual. You know, like we're just having like a chat or something. And my plan is to record these once. By the way, you know, like I have this horrible. Uh, you know, perfectionism thing that I used to consider like a strength, but it's not at all. You know, it's a, it's actually like a terrible vice that has hurt me throughout like my life in a lot of ways, you know, so I have to commit right at the outset here not to be wasting a full day re-recording these episodes until I get them perfect or something, you know, I'm going to press record and whatever comes out, comes out, you know. Unless maybe I say something factually inaccurate that I catch right afterwards, I'll go back and cut that out. But for the most part, this is just going to be a what you hear is what you get. Putting aside perfectionism is what has let me get started on everything that I've done online so far. All the video and the audio stuff, talking in front of a camera. I, I knew nothing about any of that crap, you know. But like my motto has just been just start and you'll get better. Plus, it's better to start low, and then when I look back on my progress, I feel like I've really improved. You know, you don't want to start making something awesome. Uh, you know, then there's all this pressure to kind of keep it going. You can, you want to kind of work towards that. So, uh, okay, so that's what's you know what's going on with this show. That's the basic idea behind it. I asked you guys on an Instagram story to give me some some topics for these episodes. So I wrote, you know, a bunch of them down. And then one of them was ego fatigue, okay? This idea of ego fatigue, which I happen to know, you know, a pretty good bit about. And it's a really cool topic. And I've never really hear anybody talking about it, okay? So I just figured, okay, maybe I'll start here. We'll throw this out, you know, we'll see if this this resonates with people. Um, I like it because like, neurophysiologically, it can apply to just about anything. Like, anything that we really try hard to resist or to abstain from. Um, ego fatigue is a concept that you know, psychologists have been looking at since like, around the year 2000. It sort of sounds pretty Freudian, right? You know, like like first half of the 20th century kind of stuff, but it's not. It's it's newer. Sometimes it's referred to as self-control depletion, which is exactly what it is. Um, like, like, why is it that some people can maintain some kinds of self-control for a while, but then like when there are tasks or situations that require us to suppress our desires, like hide our emotions, that that self-control just seems to like fizzle out over time. So there was this famous study that was done about 20 years ago where, where all of the participants in the study came to the lab hungry. All right. Those were the rules. You have to come to the lab hungry. You don't eat after a certain time. And they all sat down in front of, of, of uh, two bowls. It was a bowl of cookies and, and a bowl of radishes. Half the group was told to eat as many cookies as they wanted, and then the other half was told to eat as many radishes as they wanted. Then a few minutes later, the second group, okay, so the radishes group, wasn't able to perform as well on tasks that required self-control or like sustained effort. And they, you know, the researchers found that they would give up a lot sooner than the group who was allowed to eat the cookies, all right? The same effect was found like when a group was asked to avoid showing emotion, like when they watched an like, emotionally, uh, emotionally provoking movie. Like they found that afterwards, cognitive control was less available to these people, okay? Like they didn't do as well on those cognitive tests. 
And this experiment has been repeated over and over with all sorts of little changes and adjustments, and the results are indisputable. You know, like when somebody suppresses their desires or, or, or their strong impulses for some period of time, whatever cognitive machinery of, uh, of self-control is at play gets worn down or, 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 you know, fatigued, if you will, and it starts to become dysfunctional. So, okay, so what did the like neuroscience show, though? Because that's what everybody was, you know, as all these studies started to get done, well, it was right around the time that we were really able to start mapping the brain very well. So, uh, you know, it's one thing to have these, you know, psychological tests. It's another thing to have the test and then, you know, couple that with, with the actual uh, neurobiology. Okay, so what did that show? Well, because anytime that we do studies like this, though, we want to know what the brain looks like. Um, there was this guy at the University of Toronto that uh, showed that the brain waves that were involved with self-regulation, okay, like when they were measured while people were trying to avoid mistakes, for example, um, they became weaker with ego fatigue, but only when they actively tried to suppress their feelings, okay, like other kinds of like emotional control, okay, so stuff like, you know, like reinterpreting, like if somebody's trying to like interpret a past event or something, that did not cause this ego fatigue. So so just the act of focusing on a task or thinking about something very hard, that didn't disturb these brainwaves. But it was the suppressing of the emotions, the resistance, so to speak, that caused the problems. Now, now this plays into opioid addiction. And I'll go like a little bit more into the neurobiology of it in a in a second, you know, but like an easy and a and a you know, pretty like relatable way to think about, you know, kind of all this stuff is with, is with food, right? You know, more and more research today are showing how these strict restrictions that we impose on ourselves around food, like if we're not truly ready to give something up, it sets us up for ego fatigue, you know, for this self-control depletion. Um, It's a real and it's a measurable and a repeatable phenomenon. Um, you know, for example, like maybe like you're upset with yourself for, I don't know, for putting on a few extra pounds during the pandemic and, and you realize that it's probably because of the Ben and Jerry's ice cream that you're eating every night, you know? So you tell yourself, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. No more ice cream. I'm, you know, like I'm not going to buy it. Or if I do buy it, it's only for, you know, my husband or my wife and the kids or something. I don't know. Well, then like what usually happens, you know, what usually happens is for a few days, zero ice cream at all, you're feeling good about yourself. Then suddenly that willpower that was so strong right out of the gate, it just seems to vanish away. And and not only are you back to eating it, you now find yourself on the couch, you know, polishing off two pints instead of your usual one, you know, like almost like your body's making up for lost time. That's kind of what it feels like. Well, maybe that's not you. You know, maybe that only happens to me. But, but there is science to back it up. Like the fMRI brain scans, the fMRI brain scans show us that when this ego fatigue process is going on, it is increasing activation in the brain areas that are related to emotional meaning. Okay, so like the amygdala, the orbital frontal cortex in this case, and then at the same time, it's reducing the communication between those two areas and then what's known as the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is where um, 
uh, information and, and self-control are brought together. So, so it's choking off that line of communication that needs to bring those two areas together. And, and if I have any brain science nerds out there who, who follow Nora Volkow's team at the National Institute of, of Drug Abuse, and she's been there forever, man, Nora Volkow. God, she's probably... Here, let me ask. Alexa, how long has Nora Volkow been at the NIDA? Let's see what she says. Here's something I found on the web. Okay. According to psychiatry.org, Nora D. Volka, MD, became director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, NIDA, at the National Institutes of Health. Okay, let's go. Wow, 2003. So she's been there for 18 years. Man, that's a pretty long, that's a pretty long tenure. I knew she was there for a long time. Uh, I don't know what the process is over there for them to like recycle leadership. Maybe you get in and you're just there until you die. I don't know. It's like a, it's like a monarchy or something. Anyway, okay. So this process, um, like this process of the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex going offline. Okay, like when they say going offline, they mean that when you look at the fMRI, there's not much blood flow or activity. You know, but that, uh, but that lack of activity. Like that's common to literally all of the current addictive disorders that we study. Binge eating too, same thing. Um, so this is a big part of the reason that why addiction has been labeled a primary brain disease by the medical community, and they're so resistant to making any changes to that, you know, because because the brain changes can be seen in the lab. They can be seen. They can be measured. They can uh, be like, repeated, and and they're consistent across all of these addictions, you know. So. Although people in the recovery community and the general public will question addiction as a brain disease, you know, you know, by the usual definition of the word, the NIDA will never back down from that because they have the brain imaging to to point to now, you know, versus you know, versus like several decades ago uh, when they didn't, um, you, you know. But this also explains why, for any bad habit at all. And for the sake of this discussion, I'm kind of considering addiction also to be a bad habit, okay? Which it is. Um, you know, simply forcing abstinence from that behavior or thing, or activity or person or whatever, it often leads to a worse relapse. The the forcing of the abstinence, okay? That's why I say it, and I'll keep saying it. Abstinence is not a form of treatment for an addiction. It's it's simply a type of harm reduction. You know that at the moment is reducing a harm, you know, but if like the underlying drive that's creating the craving and compulsion for that particular behavior, if, if that's not addressed and actively treated, the likelihood of not only a relapse back onto the behavior, but one that might look a lot worse, it's very high. That's part of the reason that it's so common for fatal overdoses to come on the heels of a forced abstinence attempt. You know, that is very common. I know a guy who just had nine months absent from heroin. He, he he relapsed on a Friday and he was dead by Monday. Now, sure, there's fentanyl now, but this was a pattern that was going on long before the fentanyl days. And it's such a tough thing because from an outsider perspective, someone who's not considering the neuroscience, it seems so baffling how somebody can quit something, be, be really enthusiastic about stopping, maybe during that like initial strong period of, of, of willpower, they're even telling everybody how you know, how glad they are to be done with this addiction or this habit and they're swearing it off completely and they're, you know, telling everybody how how bad of a thing this was just to have a huge lapse back onto it 
you know, like a week later or two weeks later. It's absolutely baffling to people. So then people say, well, he's just a liar. You know, he's, he's full of crap. He was bullshitting everybody this whole time. But the thing that most people don't understand is that almost all of us have this going on with at least something to one, de- to one degree or another. You know, it's the same process. It's the same ego fatigue process that wears down the willpower. It's just that if you relapse back onto heroin, for example, there are a lot more immediate consequences then if you find yourself having extra scoops of your mint chocolate chip Ben and Jerry's today. Also, the difference is the opioid addicted person typically was in a lot more pain to begin with. You know, like that's why they got so much relief from the opioid versus the person who's overeating or whatever other maybe milder addictions we're referring to. And this process has been repeated with everything, by the way. Um, if we love, you know, coming home and watching Netflix, but we decided instead we're going to start forcing ourselves to do an hour of exercise as soon as we get back. The self-control depletion, it, you know, kicks back in. And that is why most people can't stick to their new regimen and, you know, go back to what they had been resisting. You know, it is similar neurobiology, just like I said, to much different degrees and ultimate, um, ultimate consequence. But ego fatigue is, is real. It's a, it's a real thing that is measurable and reproducible in the lab setting, and and it's just the scourge of all addictions. People try so hard to resist their impulses to engage in, in the addiction, but um, you know, simply resisting in this way, without the healing to go along with it, it's a disaster. You know, it's a big deal in the twelve step groups too. Like, there's this common riff inside some of these twelve step rooms of of the people who tell new guys. You know, don't worry about all this you know, step stuff. Don't worry about the books. Just don't use no matter what. And everything else will just kind of take care of itself. And and it's a hard thing to argue on the surface, you know, because, yeah, obviously, um, you know, just don't pick up makes sense for somebody who's trying to just not pick up their drug of choice again. But the problem is that it's suggesting that something magical is going to happen in the resistance alone. And what I'm arguing here in this talk is that it's not. Mere resistance, okay, which is to say like white-knuckled abstinence, it becomes torturous and, and, and often, you know, disastrously destructive for a lot of people. Self-control just starts to fray to the to this breaking point, you know, it's kind of like what it feels like. And it becomes almost impossible to avoid, you know, kind of plunging directly into those like immediate rewards of the addiction at the expense of these, you know, future rewards. And when the self-control from the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex starts unraveling and 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 when the dopamine synapses are buzzing throughout the striatum, all we can think about are those immediate rewards and continuing to resist them becomes almost you know, almost intolerably uncomfortable until it feels like you know the only way for that discomfort to be relieved is by repeating whatever forbidden and resisted behavior we're talking about. Okay, so in this case, opioids or or ice cream, if you want to stick to that example, because it feels like we're just not going to get better without it. Um, and that's a very scary place to be. And and I've been there. And I've seen a lot of people there, and I've seen some people get better, and I've seen a lot of people get worse, and it's a tough thing. But it all comes back to my main message that cuts through everything that I talk about with this stuff, which is 
forced abstinence alone is not going to make somebody better. If it did, every detox in the world would be churning out permanent success stories. And they're not. Um, You also need to actively start to reorient your life, changing behaviors, addressing root traumas, finding reasons that we don't need to use that drug anymore or that behavior so that we're no longer relying on willpower and resistance so that we don't have to worry about the willpower running out or fatiguing, if you will. Um, that's the treatment part. You know, that is the treatment that we talk about when we talk about treatment. You know, we're not just talking about uh, abstaining. So, all right, guys. You know, I hope some of that made sense. If if you like this, you know, take a second to review it, leave a comment. I love reading them. I love seeing that somebody got something from this. Um, you know, that's what will keep me doing these things. If you guys like it and give some feedback, I'll keep it up. Uh, and if not, uh, I guess I'll go do something else. So, all right, guys. Until next time. Bye-bye.